a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Our reading this morning is Acts chapter 3, verse 17 through 26. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we come before you, your needy children, so rich in gifts and powers and graces in Jesus Christ. And so we come asking, asking. Such are the terms of grace. We ask, O God, in Jesus' name, that you would grant your Holy Spirit to attend to our hearing the word as it is read publicly before us, as it is preached to us. Grant us, Lord, understanding and faith. Grant us the obedience of faith. Grant to us, O Lord, the strength of heart to cast away our sins, our unbelief, and lay hold of that which Christ presents before us today from his mouth. We ask for the ministry of your spirit, to the glory of your name, and the righteousness of your Son. Amen. Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 17. This is the second half of Peter's sermon. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's word. What shall we give to the world when it it is at its worst? Shall we bring against the world a blessing when it's at its worst? Or shall we bring a curse against the world when it is at its worst? Shall we bring a ministry of condemnation or a ministry of mercy, grace, and peace when the world is at its worst? What is the message the Church of Christ has For the world. Is it, you are disgusting. Keep away from us. 
and our children. I can't believe you think that way and live that way. I hope God crushes you like a bug on the sidewalk. Is that the message the church has for the world? Or is it, you are beautiful just the way you are. Be who you want to be. Love who you want to love. I am not here to judge. Live long and prosper. Spock. Is that the message the church has for the world? Or is it, you need to get your act together. Clean yourself up. Take a class. Read a book. Get a job. Pull it together. I did. You can too. Is that the message the church has for the world? Or is it this? Come, come to Christ. O weak and wounded sinner, come to Christ. Come have all your sins wiped away. Come out from under the hot anger of the Almighty. Come to where Judgment Day is turned to Refreshment Day. Come out of ignorance. Enter the school of Christ, the true prophet. Come, let his word dwell in you as light. Come, receive all the promises of God freely through him. Come out of corruption's bondage. Come to Christ today. Be blessed of God forever. It says in John 3.17, it's not a verbal typo, not John 3.16. It says in John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. The message the church has for the world is no different than the purpose for which God sent his Son into the world, to save sinners from the wrath of God, not to condemn them. The world is already condemned by sin, by the works of the devil, under the justice of God. So the church is not sent with a ministry or a message of condemnation. But the devil wants that to be the church's message to the world. You are disgusting. Or you are beautiful just the way you are. Or you need to get your act together. Those are all messages that keep people and advance people in their condemnation. The devil is pleased with those messages, especially if they come from the church. He wants you to be pleased with those messages, the devil. Beloved, hear this. Knowing what the world deserves is not the same as knowing what the world needs. You can have the front half of that equation and be a thousand miles from the second half. Knowing what the world deserves is not the same as knowing what God himself is giving to the world. 
God has given his only begotten son, so those condemned will not perish. Now that is John 3.16, in short. Beloved, that is the message of the church of Jesus Christ that we bring to the world. And in our reading today, Acts 3, 17 through 26, the Apostle Peter is packing this message of the gospel as full and tight as he can into the hearts of a people already condemned. By the time we get to verse 17, if you recall where we've come from, by the time we get to 17, Peter has already set the crushing weight of guilt on the conscience of his countrymen. He didn't skip that step. You killed the one whom God has glorified, he told them in verse 13. You killed the author of life, he told them in verse 15. You are guilty of murder because in your blindness of sin, you denied Jesus as the Son of God. You rejected him. You delivered him over to Pilate. You shouted, crucify him. You chose a murderer, Barabbas, to be released to you instead of the Christ. So by the time we get to verse 17, Peter has already brought a blunt force trauma to the conscience of the crowd who has gathered because of the miracle of the lame man who now leaps. Peter has already persuaded many of them that the man they worked to kill a few weeks earlier, is the Messiah of God, the Christ, the servant son of the Almighty. That's who they put to death. The very one whom heaven has subsequently glorified through resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, they threw under the bus. How far are they from heaven? How far is their mind from the mind of God? How darkened are their eyes? But Peter is not going to walk away from this crowd and drop the mic at the end of verse 16. He's not going to walk away as the wrecking ball of condemnation is swinging and knocking them over. That is not all he has come to do. He is a minister of the gospel. Peter, like Christ who has sent him, sent him wants these murderers to come out from under condemnation. And so he opens before them in this one sermon, he opens before them in the verses we have read, the gates of eternal life, and shows them how to enter. As Matthew Henry said of this passage, Peter had searched the wound to the bottom, now he begins to heal it. And look how he begins to heal it. Verse 17. He calls these murderous, bloodthirsty Christ deniers brothers. Peter will not disassociate himself from them. They are his brothers, his kindred. In fact, Peter, not long before this, acted just like these brothers of his. He too denied Christ. On the night of our Lord's arrest and trial, Peter was warming himself by a fire in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, and a slave girl said, aren't you with the Galilean? 
the one on trial in there? Peter denied it. He denied it again, denied it again, and the cock crowed, just as our Lord said it would. Three times he denied the one who is giving up his life to deliver evil men. Peter denied him to keep his life and status in an evil age. So Peter recognizes his own sin in his brothers. And he wants them to recognize in him a man who has passed from condemnation to life. So he says, brothers, as if to say, I was once what you were, condemned what you are, condemned. You can be what I am now, washed, forgiven, accepted, reconciled, a servant to the servant son of the almighty God eternal Lord Jesus Christ. Please listen to me for a moment. When we share Christ with those still under condemnation, we must find a way to let them know we have been where they are. That's what Peter is doing in verse 17. We must find a way to let them know that we have been where they are, that we too were once dead in our trespasses and sins before Christ quickened us, making us alive with him. The last thing we want people to, the last thing we want people who are still condemned to think is that we have never been where they are. Not only would that be a lie, but it would also be teaching them that Christ is something different to us than what he must become to them. They need him as a savior. Well, we only need him as a teacher. We've been in the church forever. That would be deadly. That would be inglorious. It would be ugly. It's a lie. If we think we have taken Christ but have not taken him as a savior, we are just as condemned as those people that we think need saving. We must find a way to let them know we have been where and what they are, condemned. So they might be encouraged to become what we are now, Saved under the blood of Christ. If you don't know your spiritual history, you need to learn it yesterday. You were born dead in trespasses and sins. You are first identified with Adam the first, who fell from his original righteousness and brought our race into the dirt, into the condemnation of death. And then you are identified with Adam II, the Lord Jesus Christ, who raised that humiliated flesh from the dirt to the glory of God in heaven. You must know your spiritual history or you will send people to hell because you will learn to teach them that there's a way to come to Christ not as a savior but as an exemplar a teacher only. Peter calls them brothers. 
Now, Peter says something else to them in verse 17. He says, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Yes, they put Jesus to death. They are guilty of murder and all their other sins. They're guilty of those too. But they acted in ignorance, says the apostle. They did not know he was the Messiah, is the Messiah of God. Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 2.8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Where did Peter and Paul learn to speak this way about those who crucified the Lord of glory? They learned it from the Lord of glory himself, didn't they? You know this. While being crucified on the cross, in great bodily agony, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's where Peter and Paul have learned it. And so in Acts 3.17, Peter is showing us that he has learned from the master. He has learned that the work of gospel ministry is not the work of hardening people more than they already are. The work of gospel ministry is pressing into kindness everywhere the truth allows you to press into it. Peter introduces their ignorance as a way of wooing them to step forward into the forgiveness of Christ. Peter is not trying to drive them away. His is not a ministry of retaliation or condemnation. He is doing everything he can to draw them in while telling them the truth. And he continues this strategy in verse 18. Look what he says there. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter's point here is that the sin of his fellow Jews did not defeat the sovereign purpose of God. It was always the plan for the Christ to suffer. God foretold it. God fulfilled it. It was always the plan. Now, how does Peter declaring this truth of divine sovereignty over the death of Christ help draw this crowd to the Savior? Well, it liberates them from a dark room in their conscience that they need to be brought out of to come to Christ. It allows them to say to themselves something like this, as they hear and think about verse 18. Our proud blindness was not the ultimate influence behind the death of Christ. God's sovereign will and purpose was the ultimate influence. Our sin did not defeat God's sovereign plan. It was God's will and his pleasure to put his son to death in order to secure forgiveness of sins for sinners just like us. Yes, we raised up evil hands. I'm still putting words in their mouths as they think about verse 18. Yes, we raised up evil hands. For that we are guilty. But we, what we did was going to be done with us 
or without us. It was going to be done. The Christ had to suffer. We now feel we can draw near to God, knowing God wanted this done and that God does not want it undone. How important it is. How central it is. How precious it is. God doesn't want it undone. We are hearing from the risen Christ, they would say, through his apostle, what our father Joseph said to his brothers centuries ago. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Genesis 50, 20. Remember the brothers. They sold Joseph, the little Christ, the typical Christ, the foreshadow Christ. They sold Joseph into slavery. But most of them wanted him dead, his brothers. But one of them, Reuben, said, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's sell him. By the way, Reuben means behold the son. Don't ask me how I know that. They have discovered that the death of Christ was God's will, and that allows them to hate their sin utterly, yet draw near to God without thinking they have done something unforgivable. Beloved, this is how divine sovereignty serves the ministry of the gospel. Think about how this truth of divine sovereignty might in fact be working in this room right now in somebody who's hearing this. Somebody may be saying, I have done such horrible, horrible things. I cannot come to Christ. I cannot bring these horrible things, murder, life-destroying sins of other people. I cannot bring these to Christ. We answer, yes, you have done horrible things. But those were all sins against Christ. They are as horrible but no more horrible than what Peter's brothers did to Christ in denying him and delivering him over to Pilate to be crucified. Your horrible crimes against Christ were allowed by the sovereign will of God. You're still guilty for them. Sovereignty doesn't cancel guilt, but it brings you to Christ. Why would God allow what he could have prevented? So that you might come to Christ the only way a man or a woman can come to Christ, as a sinner, under a load of sin. So you might despair of saving yourself. So you might see Christ as he is, the sinner's only hope. God allowed you to sin against the Savior. He could have prevented you. He could have bound you. But he allowed you to join the wicked family of Joseph's brothers. And here we see Peter's brothers. You're in that family too. So that you might come to see and know and feel the weight of your guilt and your need of the Savior. The reality of divine sovereignty does not make you less guilty, nor does it in any way give you the right to continue in sin, but it gives you the right to come to Christ. When you see that all of your sin has 
mounted upon your conscience under the sovereign purpose of God to have the Savior glorified before you by faith. Now it was God's sovereign will, not just that the Christ would suffer, but that he would suffer at the hands of his own people, the Jews. Peter says in verse 18 that all the prophets foretold that God's Christ would suffer. And when we go and study the prophets, we find passages like Isaiah 53, where it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah wrote, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. But we also find other passages in the prophets that foretell that it will be his own brethren who will cause his humiliation. We already referenced the brothers of Joseph. That's one such passage written by the prophet Moses, Genesis 50. We could reference many others. One that's very helpful is Judges 15, 11 and 12. You can read there how 3,000 men of Judah came and bound their brother Samson and turned him over to the Philistines because they were fearful that the Philistines would take away their place. It is a foreshadowing of the humiliation of Christ, the greater Samson, the greater judge, the greater deliverer. Why was this the plan? Why was it the plan, the sovereign will of God, that the Jews would figure so prominently in the death of their own Messiah? Why couldn't it just been left to the Gentiles, to Pilate, to the Roman soldiers, This, beloved, was the plan for the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the declaration to the nations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was the plan so the Jews would never be distinguished as somehow less dead in trespasses and sins than the rest of the nations who are called the Gentiles. This was the plan so the Jews would not be thought of as better human beings, less needy of a savior than other nations simply because they had the law, the patriarchs, the covenants. The privileges of the Jews did not elevate them above other men in quality as men. They killed the king of glory. Think not haughty thoughts. You would have been in the crowd with them, and I would have been standing next to you saying, crucify him. But what great quality of men are they to kill the king of glory, to throw upon a cross the very servant of the Almighty who heaven glorified by resurrection? Beloved, all of this Sovereign will of God to 
have the Jews be the ones who turn over their own elder brother to death helps the Gentiles, the nations, understand the gospel. It confirms to us that the nations don't just need moral elevation through the law. If the Jews had not killed Christ, we might think the Gentiles only did it because they were not Jews. Then we would think that we, what we really need is just to make men more Jewish. Then they wouldn't be so bad. But reality teaches that the Jews, being as Jewish as you can get, did not, it did not keep them from putting to death the servant of Yahweh, the Son of God. Why? Because they were blinded by the same sin that blinds the Gentiles. You might ask, what then is the advantage to being Jew? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul asked that very question in his letter to the Romans, and you're welcome to read it for homework. It is a great honor to be among the people who were first in giving testimony to the nations that there was a Redeemer coming who would answer to Adam's great fall and all his posterity. It's a great honor. But that honor without faith made them as wicked and corrupt and murderous and bloodthirsty as Pilate. Now there is something else in verse 18 that comes becomes actually a bright golden thread that runs through the remainder of this passage. And Peter takes up this thread and sews it down through verse 26 to draw his crowd to the Savior. And what I'm speaking of here is all of his references to the prophets. This is a very dense passage on the prophets. The word prophet appears six times in these few verses, 17 through 26. Peter wants to show the Jews what true repentance is. That's why he keeps talking about the prophets here. He's teaching them that they have truly repented when Jesus Christ is their prophet of prophets. When they hang on every word of Jesus Christ. When they see him as the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham. Then when they see him as the fulfillment of what Samuel spoke of, when they see him as the fulfillment of what Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, that a prophet would emerge from among them, one of their own brothers. Peter is showing them that they have truly repented when Jesus Christ is their true prophet. But all of this is designed to first comfort them, of course. Peter comforts them with the announcement that coming to Christ is the way they keep fellowship with all the prophets of Israel. That's a brilliant strategy endowed by the Holy Spirit because Jews, of course, want to be in fellowship with the prophets. Moses and Samuel and Abraham and all the others. But as soon as Peter draws them to Christ by speaking of the prophets, he then says, 
that Christ is the prophet of the prophets. He's the one you've been waiting for. Every word he has spoken must become as precious to you and more precious indeed than you've ever shown to those who are simply prefigurements of him, Samuel and Moses. By speaking so much about the prophets in this passage, Peter is shrewdly leading the Jews to enter the fulfillment of the scriptures. He wants them to know that he is not leading them into something novel, some new cult. He is leading them to what all the prophets spoke about, Christ the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Now, by coming to Christ and putting themselves under Christ, the Jews are learning that they're not launching out in a wholly new direction. They're actually coming to the fulfillment of all their religion. Everything their religion was pointing to was about Christ. And now they have actually learned from Peter that the prophets of the old covenant were brought into the world and they were raised up because Christ was going to one day come into the world. All the ministry of the prophets from the very beginning was for Christ and a preparation of him. Peter's laying this out all upon their conscience. All for this purpose, beloved, to teach them that the Jewish faith, without coming to Christ, is something, but it is not the Jewish faith anymore. It is not the Apostle Peter who is the innovator. To be a Jew in Jerusalem And to not come to Christ is to become the innovator yourself. It is to step away from the fellowship and school of the prophets. It is to start a new religion altogether. Whatever it is, it is no longer Judaism. Because Judaism was always to be fulfilled in the Son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. To, To put Christ out of the way is to put all the prophets out of the way and chart a new course in a religion that must be called pagan. Don't be fooled, beloved. Any religion that is simply about the commandments and not centered upon the Christ is not Christian of any kind nor near it. What does the Lord think about a Judaism that rejects Christ? In 70 AD, he sent the Romans to tear down the city of Jerusalem. Jesus foretold the high priest on the night of his trial that that day was coming. How can that temple even remain? It is a a structure of idolatry. For Christ has been raised He is the true temple of God. Beloved, I have more to say on this text. I was afraid this would happen. That's not a a true fear. I think I'm lying. We'll be back here one more week in in this sermon. But understand what Peter is doing here. Peter has a ministry that is 
far from this ministry. All you all need is a swift kick in the pants. That's not what Peter wants to give the world. That is not gospel ministry. That's the devil's ministry. The world is condemned already. We, yes, will have to make some people who don't know that clearly aware of it, that they are already condemned. But we are doing no Christian, no gospel ministry if that's where we stop. If we only act like the state telling men where they are wrong, where they have done evil, we are no church. The state is the arm of the law. The church is law and gospel. Let us pray. Oh, Father, bring us to Christ this way, as Peter works so hard to bring others. Bring us by these sweet expressions. Father, we pray for anyone who has heard these words today, who is outside of Christ. Let them know that we are their brothers, their sisters. We are kin in sin and condemnation. We have come from that stock ourselves. Oh, Father, we pray that this would help them not harden, not think of us as aliens whom they can never find union with. Oh, Father, we pray that this would draw their hearts to the Savior that we have run to seek shelter in. And Father, we also pray today that we would rejoice and be unashamed, unembarrassed of the divine sovereignty that lie before, beneath, beside, above, below, all of the salvation that you have worked out in your beloved Son. That no, none, no sinner has thwarted your plan, and no sinner yet has sinned so horribly that they have thwarted your plan of salvation for them. Oh, Lord, bring us the very worst of us, for we are the chief of sinners. Bring us to the Savior. And fortify us, Lord, in the truth of this gospel that all are dead in trespasses and sin and only the Savior makes alive. Keep us true to this. In Jesus' name, amen.